Hey everybody, welcome back to the Pixelist Podcast, the podcast about all the nerdy things we enjoy. I'm Will, that's Blake, and today we're here to talk a little Alexandria Limited Calamity, baby! Episode 3. Super hyped to talk I, about it. I, I don't think I can do this. Oh, you're out? I, I don't think I can do this, man. There's there there's too much emotion at stake Bro. to walk through this episode again. Very true. And gosh, I can't even imagine next episode, man. It's going to be... It's going to be a heart wrencher. Bring the tissues for sure. For sure. And I mean, not to get too distracted right now in the intro, but I wonder how long it's going to be. I mean, this one we're talking about today was nearly six hours. And I'm wondering if we're even in for a longer one to to round it out. I told myself it'd be a while to watch this whole episode, but I pretty much watched the whole thing on release night. And then the next day I watched the whole thing again. (laughs) So, yeah, yeah, same here, basically. It was. So, but... I digress. Uh, <laughs> welcome to the Pixelist Podcast. Uh, we're going to be talking some Critical Role today, like my friend Will mentioned. And if you aren't familiar with the podcast, typically we talk about um, what we thought of it, our theories, what we think, where we think the series is going next. Uh, we usually pat ourselves on the back for things that we called <laughs> from episode one that we totally nailed, and we ignore all the other things that we got horribly wrong. Right. So uh, before we do that, we also do a little recap where we actually take our conversation um we, before we do the conversation we take a basically description of what happened in the show i don't know why i'm explaining what a recap is it's pretty self-explanatory <laughs> <laughs> but it's six hours so we're going to try to boil that down into as short and brief a segment as possible and this gets clipped out into its own section so if you're watching just the recap click the link below we do have the whole discussion uh, and you have if you have your own thoughts and theories we'd love to invite you to join us in the comment section let us know what you think so Having said that, Will, do you want to kick us off on episode three? Yeah, let's kick it off. And I guess we're, we're actually recording this one a little bit earlier, so we don't know what the title of the episode is yet. But um, right. episode three of Exandria Unlimited Calamity. So this episode picks up where we left off with Lucretia Hollow basically stopping the Ring of Brass as they are making their way to the helm of Avalir. And she, there's basically this confrontation right outside of the helm. And Lucretia is surrounded by like... Uh, and again, she's like the head of the necromancy, whatever. So she's surrounded by these skeletons. And there's also a bunch of people um, lining different roofs around. So the Ring of Brass find themselves surrounded. There's kind of like this really uh, like, what are you doing here? Kind of like, you know, it, the tension is very high. But before combat breaks out, um, they're like, hello, Ring of Brass. What? What are you doing? And uh, Loquacious is like, I'm here for an interview. Uh, they're all helping me. And basically, um, as this is happening, Magister Milas friend walks out from the helm, but with an absurd investigation check by Serret, um, he notices that when um, Milas friend walks through the doorway, that he kind of like adjusts weirdly. And the implication is that uh, this is not Milas friend. Instead, it is someone who is illusioned. Uh, to appear as Milo's friend. <clears throat> and Loquacious is asking about this interview, and uh, Milo's is like, oh, you know, today's not a good day. Um, you know, maybe come back tomorrow. And Sarah, noticing this, basically furls out his wings, takes to the sky, and 
At the sign of that, Lucretia immediately shouts something in Infernal, and boom, roll initiative. And basically the entire first half of this episode is this um, combat. And, you know, if you're familiar with our recaps, we don't want to bore you down, bog you down with a play-by-play of everything that happened in the combat. So I'm just going to hit you um, with the highlights and the important things that happened during this. So first and foremost, uh, Nidus uh, is first in rotation, uh, first in initiative. And he kicks off by flipping out this gold coin that he has, which summons a basically spiritual um, dragon. Uh, and I'm going to totally pr- uh, butcher this pronunciation, but I think it was Shah Korzan. And essentially, this dragon's spirit is of the dragon that uh, originally inhabited the mountain that, you know, the peak of which is now Avalir, um, hoarding this, its, its hoard of gold that it had. And that um, location where the Horde of Gold was is now the Golden Scythe, of which, of course, Nidus is the Guild Master and the Dragon of Avalir. So every Dragon of Avalir, this is passed down to them, this uh, Dragon Spirit. Um, and so he summons that, whips in, combat begins, and he basically, first and foremost, goes for this Mylas friend and attacks him. And because of that, he drops concentration. And so this illusion dissipates. Um, but for the sake of clarity, I'm just going to re- keep referring to this creature as Mylas Friend, probably. Um, uh, but the illusion dissipates and instead is a true devil. It's 15 foot tall, horned demon, basically. Um, a being that has not walked Avalir in any of these people's lifetimes before now. So... Combat ensues. Lucretia is barking out orders in Infernal, and every time she takes a turn, at the end of her turn, she basically goes invisible, only reappearing when it's her turn to go again. Um, combat ensues. Combat ensues. Xerxes, our pal daddy himself, is unleashing some mega damage with his Divine Smites and Nat 20s on um, these demons and fiendish creatures that we have in this battle. And just basically pumping out some absurd damage. And during this, Lucretia yells, again an infernal, that no one in the party can understand except for Xerxes, who doesn't even really realize that he's understanding, um, or later in this combat, speaking infernal. But he understands that she uh, yells out, uh, Zartaza, like, go get the blood of the chosen. And they're like, blood of the chosen. Um And then this new figure appears on the battlefield. It's this beautiful woman with a porcelain face and, again, going to butcher pronunciation here, but I believe uh, the race of what she is is called a Erinyes or something to that effect. Basically kind of this demon-esque beautiful woman. Uh, Armored weapons, flies straight for Xerxes. Um, Tries to take some attacks on him, but they're all deflected. Um, thanks to that protection of good and evil spell that Asmodeus put on Xerxes. And at seeing this, she just like pauses and is like, it's beautiful. And combat continues, combat continues. Uh, There are some mages lining the rooftops. Two of them drop their invisibility that they had had and rush towards Seret. One of the mages is empowering the other to impose disadvantage on Seret for the detect thoughts that the main casting mage is doing. So he runs up, slams his head against Seret's head and says, the tools of Vespin Chloris and cast detects thoughts, invades his mind, successfully does so. 
And as soon as that finishes, he basically turns and runs away, jumping off the nearby tower. Um, more enemies are arriving in this conflict called the Canalfi, who had basically been hidden around the area waiting for things to pop off. Um, another big moment is Laren reverses gravity on like a big cylinder of the combat and everyone gets lifted 100 feet into the air, um, including Lucretia and also Nidus, who is still on his dragon, but they're being grappled by this massive hand. So all of them go flying up. Uh, Nidus, however, is able to free himself and his dragon and then successfully grapple uh, Lucretia Hollow with his dragon and then just basically starts speeding towards his friends. Um, but this true devil, Milo's friend, jumps up, basically smashes him, is able to kill the dragon, uh, which causes Lucretia to be freed um, and everyone to plummet. But the devil grabs Lucretia and uh, Pesha casts Slow Fall on Nidus so that he doesn't, you know, fall to his death. Um, <clears throat> it's around this time that both Xerxes and Laren get a call on their little bracelets. Uh, Xerxes is being told that, hey, the city's under attack. The Eldritch batteries are being sabotaged. And Laren is called by Callum Staffright and is told the same thing about the Eldritch batteries, but also that the Arboreal Calyx is requesting 30% of the reserve energy. Um, but, you know, this like stopgap is preventing that from being fulfilled. So Laren says, hey, kill the stopgap. So he does. And when that happens, the devil and Zartaza, the Aranyas, just immediately begin to cough up blood. So they're like, uh, hopefully that was a good thing. Um, so in this time, Xerxes uh, speaks with Zartaza a bit again. And he's like, hey. And again, he's speaking in Infernal without even realizing it. He says, this was not the deal. Tell your lord to stand down. The people here are not to be harmed. And she replies to him, bring him and we'll honor this. And he's like, this isn't over, but he leaves her and flies toward the devil and just, again, obliterates him with these divine snites and stuff, eventually getting the, how do you want to do this? And as he's doing the killing blow, uh, Brennan describes to him that he hears a voice in his head that says Xerxes and he can't quite place it, but he knows it's uh, familiar and proud. Uh, he then turns back to Zartaza, who stabs him. And she pulls out her blade, now covered in his blood, and um, she's like, remember my, remember my name, Zartaza. It's been an honor, and it would be an honor to serve you at your side. And now, having what she wanted in his blood, she flies away. Um, <clears throat> combat, combat, combat. Laren drops the gravity spell, so all the rest of the people up, you know, fall, most of them to their death. Uh, she then grabs Loquacious and Dimension Doors away toward the nearest Eldritch Battery in um, order to protect it. Uh, Nidus casts Detect Thoughts on one of the nearby mages in order to glean some information, but he can't really process what he learns until after the combat. And finally, Pesha really wants to take out uh, Lucretia, but she's invisible. Um, she's gone back to being invisible between her turns. Um, so Pesha decides to hold a spell, the spell Resilient Sphere, for when she can see her next. Um, <clears throat> Serret rushes to the helm to investigate what's going in. He kind of leaves the battle. He's like, I'm just going to go in there. Look, he finds Akami Ro dead, her throat slit, and the helm basically completely destroyed. So Avalier is essentially unable to alter its course. Um, Lucretia then appears next to Pesha and is like, I always hated you. And she's attempting to cast Circle of Death. But again, Pesha was holding a spell for this. So Pesha is attempting to cast her held spell, uh, the Resilient Sphere. But Lucretia attempts to counterspell that. 
But Xerxes counterspells her counterspell. And so now we have the circle of death versus the resilient spear going off. And Brennan homebrews this interaction and basically has them roll a contested arcana check um, of which Marisha wins. So how this plays out is Pesha's resilient sphere encapsulates Lucretia as she's casting circle of death. So this wide circle of death spell instead is trapped in this sphere with her and it basically just disintegrates her. She's a skeleton instantly dead and that's the end of Lucretia Hollow. (laughs) (laughs) So cool. (laughs) Super cool. And with that happening, basically everyone else is like, oh shit. So the rest of the Canolfi and everyone else begin to flee. Um, A few of these mages surrender, but Nidus is having none of that. He's like, there's only one uh, response to mutiny. And he basically stabs them both in the heart. And that's where we go to break kind of with the combat ended. If you want to take it from there. Yeah, this is like after three hours, by the way. Like, yeah, <laughs> this is insane. The number, just real quick, the number of rolls they had to make in this fight, like, uh, like un- unfair, unfair rolls, but like rolls that were not in their favor. And then them making it, like the counter spell had to be below an eight for Lucretia and she yeah. rolled a four. Like, yeah. that kind of stuff was insane. But um if you enjoyed the first half uh the second half is going to wreck you uh (laughs) the party basically comes they they don't come back together but like everyone comes back to the table and brendan mentions like yes these batteries are on their attack and everyone has to roll a d20 to see which of the batteries and these are the batteries that kind of from what i understand keep like the city powered and presumably maybe even keep the city afloat yeah there's 12 across the city they all roll only one of them rolls poorly and uh only one battery goes down and they party kind of self-congratulates like wow we're really good at protecting these batteries uh and it's implied that like the city guard is out and about like protecting the city as they can yeah um with the batteries with, with combat seemingly subsided and like the assault also seemingly stopping briefly uh, Loquacious and Laren are actually going to make their way to the Meridian Labyrinth. Um, and it's in this process. Uh, let me grab my notes real quick. Um, it's in this process that um, in this in this brief lull, Sarah's going to ask um, Xerxes about speaking Infernal. Because Xerxes during the combat had basically been like, this wasn't part of the deal. Re- referencing his conversation with the Lord of the Hells in the previous episode. But he said it in Infernal, didn't realize that. And so Sarah asks him about that. And he's like, I have no idea what you're talking about, man. Um, and then Sarah also asks Nidus about, hey, in the Herald's Tome, which the Herald's Tome is, is inside of the Golden Scythe, um, basically says, hey, what's up with this file on Evandrin that was empty? And again, doesn't really get any answers. You know, Sarah, the master investigator, just can't seem to wrap up these loose ends. Uh, meanwhile, Loquacious and Laren are having a conversation on really what exactly Laren's plan is. And Laren's talking about we're only it's it's about two in the morning and she's like we're only a few hours away from landing on kathmora for the for this this apogee solstice happening it's my last chance like as soon as we get there we're this plan of going to other planes is going to happen and loquacious is really bothered by this he was bothered in a previous episode he's bothered again now and he's kind of like hey what like have you thought about this? Have you have you thought this through? Like, have you considered the fact that like the the archept, um, like the leaders of the city, that they'd consider you doing something treasonous? Like, you haven't even asked anyone if they'd want to. And Laren is so confident. Um, terrific acting, by the way, by Bria Yengar. 
who's like, this is the right decision. This is what this is what the age of Arcanum stands for. It's what Avalier stands for. Like this is something that has to happen. So um also because of these attacks that have happened on the city, Loquacious knows that something, some kind of report needs to go out. And he's like the head reporter guy, you know? So um, but he also wants to protect Laren and, and protect Laren's legacy. And so he basically sends out a report that says there's been a disturbance. Um, Dean Hollow uh, has caused this disturbance. Um, I can't share more, but just sit tight and we'll have more information basically in the morning. And then separately, he records on this sort of like, I think it was like a Final Fantasy memory crystal or something. Yeah. He records like this personal uh you know tape recorder like last will and testament kind of thing and he basically says um you know of all the crazy things that happened i want everyone to know that there was one person selflessly trying to um protect the city and that was laren laren did that and um i'm also giving giving my resignation from the herald's tome and the voice of the scepter whatever it is um and there's some really great, basically the two of them, despite being divorced, have this really wholesome reunion moment of like, we still love each other. Laren basically says, hey, I'm sorry, I never trusted you. And um, it's it's really great. But anyway, um, the party all make their way to the Meridian Labyrinth. Pesha and Xerxes share this moment where Pesha reveals that Xerxes came to see her and he's like yeah of course like i remember coming to see you and because you came to he basically says you know i came to see you about healing evandrin but we couldn't figure it out and so i just went on my way and she basically reveals that that's actually not what happened and brennan reveals that patia cast modified memory on xerxes and his memory of the events is not accurate and so Xerxes is shocked by this. He casts a zone of truth and purposely fails, and he encourages his fellow members to purposely fail. Um, Nidus and um, Laren do not. Uh, however, um, I don't remember if Loquacious did. I know Seret purposely failed. Wait, I think Nidus purposely failed. It was oh, okay. It was Quay and Laren that. Thank did you. Not, yeah, I think. Yeah, and Nidus actually gets pretty pissed off at, at Xerxes. It's like, we don't have time for this. Like, I get what you're doing, but like, we don't have time for this. And Patia basically says, hey, do you want to know what happened? And Xerxes is like, okay, yeah, tell me. And so she restores his memory and basically reveals that Xerxes came to her out of options. What can you do to help Evandrin? And she basically found druidic magic, sealed away forbidden magic, um, I took it as some kind of like lore spin on like basically the resurrection spell and that they cast it and it failed. And Xerxes was so much in despair at the resurrection spell spell failing that he requested that she change his memory for him to forget that it ever even happened, which she obliged. But in this conversation, she has a realization. The only way this could have failed is if Evandrin wasn't really dead. And it's at this point that Laren admits that Evandrin volunteered to be the first one to use the astral ley light to go to the celestial plane. He left, but when he came back, he wasn't the same. And we know from a previous episode that this basically doomed him. Patia also says basically that it seemed like they had, they had sundered him from his soul and his body and that there was some kind of separation that happened. Uh, in this whole conversation, Sarah is also trying to figure out like, hey, what's going on with the city? What are the fail safes? Like, could the city stop descending? Like, what's happening? And Laren basically says, 
I know the answer to that question, but I'm not going to tell you because it's too important for us to stop now. Like we have to land the city. We have to make sure that this Apogee solstice is properly utilized or else my chance is gone forever. Sarah is so pissed off at her selfishness that he like looks over the party and he's basically like, you guys suck. <laughs> and he's like, I'm out. I'm going to go take care of mine. I don't know if we're going to survive the city, but I'm going to go look after my, my family flies off. He leaves. Really quickly, I'll just address what happens with him. He flies away, calls his son, basically says, hey, find your sister, come home ASAP. He goes to um, his office, and the artifacts from his desk are gone, presumably stolen by the cultists. He goes and, and knocks on his partner's door, uh, Orem, and, or Orman, Orem? Orwin, I think. Orwin, thank you. I'm thinking of uh, our yeah. campaign. <laughs> yeah um orwin and orwin is dead behind the desk and has been killed and he holds a note basically um and also two runes of recall uh addressed for Sarah. and it's basically like hey i hope you make it out of here um so he takes those two runes, runes of recall brennan describes them as two tickets out of the city and he flies to go home to get his family back at the uh meridian labyrinth the remaining party is like, we need to go look at this tree. Like this is like the central focus. So they go in, they look at the tree. Um, they notice uh, uh, the little toy boat from Laren. It's translucent and it's stuck in the tree. And then they actually notice the, um, well, before I say that, uh, Nidus starts going through the memories also of um, the memories that he stole. And long right. story short, he finds out that Master Corm Cormoranth had been inviting the Canalfi into the city. He also finds out that um, he sees a memory of Dean Hollow talking with a cultist, basically saying, like, the city must not land, similar to Vespin Chloris's comment earlier. Um, and actually, this would have been before Sarat left, because Sarat actually, with an investigation, realizes that this isn't real. Uh, this is also a modified memory, and that what was actually said was Dean Hollow said, the city must land, which is why they killed the helmswoman and destroyed the controls to stop the process from yeah. being reverted, reversed. Excuse me. So apologies, there's so many things happening here, so I'm getting a little confused. <laughs> um, all that to say... As this, this whole you know, conversation is happening, um, Laren sees the face of Evandrin in the tree, this translucent, horrific face. And she's like, I can get to him. I can, I can help him. And she begins to cast Blight. Nidus, remembering the memories, or remembering the prophecy of destroying the tree and how that would be the end of the world, basically, is like, we can't do this. We can't destroy the tree. Like, there's, there's things we don't understand here. Party basically goes to combat. Um, Loquacious and Laren are basically against Nidus, who's trying to stop them. Uh, uh, Loquacious tries to do his fae presence to fear uh, Nidus, but because he's near um, Xerxes within 10 feet, he can't be feared. Nidus is going to cast whole person on both of them. They're going to both fail. Um, Dwermer, uh, the assistant, uh, the Aeord assistant bot, comes in, sees this all happening, tries to cast Finger of Death on Nidus, uh, and it gets counterspelled by Xerxes. Um, another couple of rounds go by. Patia goes over to the tree, grabs a tree. It says that her eyes become like fire. Her hair flies back you know, behind her head. 
And she begins to see all of this. It's like a massive download of knowledge. And essentially what happens is she sees memories of Amir, her grandfather, and then the head of the Gal Drashari talking about the tree. And Amir being like, you know, what's the tree? Like, what's it for? Just tell me. And the Gal and the leader being of the Gal Drashari being like, you know, I can't tell you. Um, and yeah, she actually sees a conversation between the Gal Drashari internally of them saying, like, we can't tell them what the tree's for. Um Loquacious is actually going to go grab her to try to pull her off. He's going to see the basically the, I think it was like the leader of the Sealy Court, yeah. uh, being like, "Child, what are you doing? Like, you shouldn't be looking here. Like, there is a there's something moving on your city." Which, by the way, not just on the city, uh, in Nidus's memories that he pulled, they realized that there's also attacks happening all over Exandria, most notably uh, on Kathmora below them. Um, all this to say. Uh, Laren finally casts Blight, and the city, it, it, excuse me, the tree gets, gets hit by this. The center of it by the trunk uh, sunders and splits with this fiery flame. It opens to reveal presumably a portal that Vespin Chloris, with his skinned face, steps through, and then the Lord of the Hells behind him, Asmodeus, who says, very good, my little puppet, and basically is like, home sweet home it's been forever since i've Ooh. been here and that is where the episode ends of episode three of calamity <laughs> yeah <Whew. laughs> jam-packed holy crap <laughs> uh again if you're watching just the recap click the link below check the whole discussion wow let's get into uh first things first yeah. um you know let's let's Hey, did you like the episode, man? I hated it. This series is trash. (laughs) I'm not even going to watch episode four. No, man, this is freaking incredible. I mean, I, for those of you that follow us, you're going to know I already basically said this, but I tweeted out that this is some of the best storytelling I've ever seen. Uh, I'm including that with TV shows. I'm including that with movies. I'm including that with books. Just best storytelling among the best storytelling I've ever seen. Uh, I feel like everyone's just firing off on all cylinders. Brennan's putting out a master class. Uh, everyone is. Everyone is. All of their characters are, are just so... Uh, relatable is not the right word, but like... Human. Yeah, human. There we go. Yeah. It, it's, it's just been fantastic. I'm sad that we only have one episode left, and I'm sad that probably everyone's going to die. <laughs> but really good. What about you? I freaking love this. It's so rare that I watch an episode twice. I watched the last episode twice. I watched this episode twice. I'm sure going to watch the next episode twice. Um, Brennan is amazing. He's Mm -hmm. really good. Um, I mean, I think you, I don't know if he's good for everyone. I mean, for me, I'm a lore junkie. I love, I love how he paints the word picture and also like takes data points to point to other, like I forgot to mention in the recap, he basically talks about how the Galdrashari would eventually become the Ashari. Mm-hmm. Like these, these little lore drops are so fun for me. And um, separate from him, the parties interactions, um, Pesha and Xerxes, especially when she reveals the modified memory, was it was insane to me. I thought it was so well acted between the two of them. I thought Marisha, I, I, Marisha might be my all time favorite like just cast member in general um separately she's amazing in campaign three she was freaking phenomenal in this episode um i'm just i'm just i'm just right now i'm just like (laughs) you know waxing poetically (laughs) as is our what we naturally do in these episodes but 
I thought it was amazing. My wife, who again is not typically a D&D critical role watcher, um, she's also, she didn't catch this episode, which we need to watch it. But I mean, she's been like totally blown away. Um, and I agree with your, your tweet also. I, I think this is literally some of the best story content that you can get in a medium. Uh, and I think anyone who's never watched Critical Role or D&D in some format, I think these four episodes are going to be the perfect um, introduction to either Critical Role or just watching D&D online. I agree. I, I've, I've been thinking about that as well as maybe like using this to introduce people and not to get too off subject here. My only concern was with the massive amounts of lore and stuff that, you know, we do have some context for. I wonder how like scary that is for somebody that like knows nothing. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And that's a fair point. Cause like the second episode was extremely lore heavy and my wife even was like, I have no idea what's going on, but I'm here for it. <laughs> You know, um, so, uh, you know, I guess I could walk back what I just said slightly in the sense of it's definitely better served if you have some connection to the critical role world. Um, episode two had a lot of lore. Um, and dude, I totally forgot in the recap. There were so there's so many like awesome moments that like, I missed it in the recap, but I even forgot to mention um, them seeing the memory, realizing that the tree as it was as it was basically going through the ley lines of Exandria, as Avalier was basically gathering ether. The tree was its blossoms were dropping like the the sigils or like the runes of protection across Exandria and writing the names of presumably the deities who want to make their way back in. Uh, pretty big, important detail, by the way, <laughs> that I forgot to put in the recap. But um, yeah, I mean, stuff like that even would probably be over someone's head of like, OK, what's what's that mean? Like what's going on? But forget it. I think it's great writing. I think it's all yep. been great. I think it's been awesome interactions. Um, I don't know, man. Yeah. I, I love, I've loved it for sure. Yeah. Me too. Me too. It's, I just, I mean, obviously it's, we know where the story ends. It's basically, we've reached that point of the calamity. Um, and we know it's only four episodes <sighs> long, but my, my pipe dream kind of hope would be, it would be the calamity is like, is not a, a one weak thing it lasts a hundred plus years so yeah, i think i read be... like 150 or something yeah so it would be kind of so... cool if maybe we get exu calamity part two and maybe it's not with these characters but maybe it's another story set within this 150 year period you know brennan comes back to dm i don't know I, at least that's my my copium for like maybe we'll get some more I of this getting like a one shot a one shot in the middle of the calamity you know, a ragtag group just trying to survive, basically. I think the next big EXU story that makes sense to me would be um, maybe the end of the calamity. Like, yeah, because cool. I'm thinking about I'm thinking about how do you match the stakes? Because think about this, watching the first episode, the tension was already palpable. The stakes were already there. Like we all knew this was the end of the world. And right. as like the little threads were getting pulled, it was this for me personally, it was a sinking feeling that was growing over the entire last three episodes. Yeah. Where now, like, for example, when Sarah goes and sees um, uh, Orwin. Orwin, I mean, that that hit right in the feels of just like, dude, this is it. Like, this is literally it. This is the end of everything that we know it. Um, again, that's that's credit to the cast and credit to Brennan for what they've created. But I think. In my mind, the only thing that matches the weight of the story implicitly would be the end of the calamity. You know, we know that that the deities get sealed away. 
the prime deities leave. Um, and by the way, I want to talk separately. I, I want to talk at another point in this conversation about how, how well I think this mini campaign might feed into campaign three yeah. of, uh, of critical role, mm. uh, as well. But other than that, yeah. I, where to even begin, man? Uh, combat was amazing. We could start there. Yeah. That, that, uh, I, I don't want to pronounce Shaq, the dragon. I thought that was such a cool, yeah. like flavor and just, I really love that. And, uh, such a cool spell too. I didn't even know that was a yeah. spell. Um, I like it. You said that though. Cause I, this was the first time I've watched D and D with high level combat. Because I think the party's level 14, um, yeah. which typically would be like an end of campaign um, level. If you haven't ended earlier than that, if you're doing like a module, you might be, you know, level 10 or 11, 12. Um, I think you said that campaign two ended around this range. Um, yeah, I think uh, maybe a little higher, 14 to 16 ish, I think. Yeah, I guess campaign one, they were higher level. Um, they were. But they also started higher level, though, too. But point point being though that i'm making is i'm so used to all right guys it's our first session we're gonna start at level two because level <laughs> one's really tough um joe what are you gonna do uh eldritch blasts eldritch you know that's blast. like yeah. that's all they can do you know and so um it was really refreshing and it kind of reinvigorated my excitement for D because it was like oh there's this whole other post level 10 world um and really scary spells too the finger of death the, the um, excuse me the circle of death yeah disintegrate um, disintegrate that's right so there was a lot of cool stuff for sure uh, for sure and um one thing in particular during the combat that i want to bring up is uh the again i wish i knew the correct pronunciation of this the erinyes or zartaza the like beautiful mm -hmm. woman demon i, I pronounce it erin yes erin yes okay. which might be wrong but i just do erin and yes because that's how you spell it so i don't know yeah i mean that checks out to me um a super cool connection with her for those of you that may or may not know if you haven't you know kind of dived into the 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 source books and stuff um so zartaza is um you know, this Aaron, yes, that serves Asmodeus, and we know she's collected Xerxes's blood. Um, there is this, so there's vestiges of divergence, right? That were, are these really powerful artifacts. Um, there's kind of like, uh, in the same realm of powerful artifact, there are these things, uh, well, I just forgot, I literally forgot what they're called. Uh, oh, they're called Arms of Betrayers. Um, and there's one called the Mace of the Black Crown, which is basically made from Zartaza. She like becomes the sentient weapon. Uh, cool. And the fact that she said, you know, I would be honored to fight by your side. I'm wondering oh. if Xerxes becomes like this Lord of Hell champion of Asmodeus. Might he wield the Mace of the Black Crown, which is Zartaza, and she'll be fighting by his side, you know? Um, yeah. So I just I thought that was super cool, and I mean, may or may not happen, but uh, it she does become that mace. We know that much is is going to happen. So I just thought that would be a really cool little like foreshadowing yeah. nod if that line like led to that. I love these little like data points that pop up, like the connections that pop up. Um, you know, because think about this, like the intentionality behind 
again, I just imagine Brennan and Matt like grabbing coffee and being like, okay, so who are like, it, I don't know, Matt in some of his previous like, like DM explanatory content has talked about his, his um, process for world building is like, not just, which by the way, is probably not functional for like any average DM out there. Um, <laughs> you know, I think, I think the average DM, it's like the party's like, we want to go in this door. And you're like, uh, yeah, that door has Tom, Tom in it. And Tom is uh super racist, by the way, <laughs> so the party's thrown off by him. You know, you're just like making it up off the top of your head. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, Matt talks about how he even goes down granularly to like the motivations of like certain NPC characters and like what drives them. And so there was obviously a conversation on Zartaza and like, oh, let's have Zartaza be the person who because um, it's obviously it's too it's too neat a tie for it to be coincidental. Right. Um, but like you mentioned that. And then in the previous episode, you talked about the solar um, yeah, yeah, the solar yeah. night um, who gets brought up again in like a source book but mm-hmm. um i don't know i really appreciate those little details yeah they're really what make like the world feel alive you know right um so just thought that was just amazing um what else during the there was something else i wanted to bring up during the combat uh let me look at my notes really quick i love how the protection of good and evil popped up with zartaza attacking oh it's like yeah this board that she just like bounces off of that was really cool too that was awesome um yeah, I don't I can't find it, so I'm not just gonna keep stalling here. But uh it was there anything else you wanted to bring up? Well, I, was, I, I said it I said it in the recap, but I was really invested in this combat because of how much seemed stacked against them. Um and again, the roles that had to be made that didn't seem to be in their favor and yet they made them or the, and then Britain, which by the way, um, a lot of his roles were above the board or on the board rather, um, for everyone to see, um, which isn't, isn't always a typical DM strategy. Um, I know I don't typically roll my dice in front of my players. Um, and it's not to, it's not to, um, go against them it's actually the opposite it's it's sometimes i'm like it's just kind of rough let me fudge sometimes you gotta sometimes you gotta fudge the rolls a little bit yeah let me fudge just a little bit because i don't want you know someone to get murdered here right um that's just my personal style but um yeah i liked a lot that he was doing it in front um and then also Milas friend uh i didn't so the way i interpreted it was that Milas friend had basically always been this person wolf in sheep's clothing and it was like his true form but the way you presented it makes a little bit more sense because i was thinking like how has this been the case like this doesn't make any sense to me um someone basically hiding in plain sight as him Mm -hmm. definitely makes more sense to me a disguised self or something basically right right. um but that would be interesting if it always was or at least maybe for for a while had been or something my my data point. The reason I said that is because we had all, all we also had other data points of um, I can't think of the guy's name, but the one that Xerxes, um, which I played a paladin in a previous campaign, and the divine smite spam is real, where he hits him for like <laughs> seventy something. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Um, it was like a it was like an armorer or like someone, but uh, they they basically ask, are these people being possessed? And Brennan says like, no, these oh, are. Right these are basically people who are, have been secretly cultists this entire time. And they're, they're all over the city. Basically the city has been infiltrated. And so that was my data point with Milas friend was mm, maybe yeah. there was never a Milas friend. It was always this devil charading as him. Yeah. So 
but I don't know. Um, that uh, not that this is important, but Fendris Lightbreaker was the person you're referring to. The he was like the cell sword. Um, yeah, who, that's who right. Was fighting, um, but yeah, and uh, so during the combat, I thought it was really interesting with the whole the Calyx requesting energy thing, and then the devils like start vomiting blood or whatever. Yeah, because they don't give it energy. Okay, that's that was my thought. And then when I was going through uh, making my notes for the recap, I, I confused myself. I was like, is that what happened? Because logically to me, we know that the Calyx is preventing things from coming over, right? So these devils right. maybe shouldn't be here. If the Calyx gets energy, they vomit because it's like fighting against them. Right. So that checks out. But I too thought that she didn't give it energy. Yeah, because she gets the call that's basically like we're getting re- we're getting the request, and she says like don't do it, like cut it. Right. So to um, me, that would mean they would like be empowered, not hurt. Right. Yeah. There's a definitely like a detail there that's still fuzzy about like how the tree has been interacting. Um, it's clear. Um, it's clear that the tree has been basically, and I think we said this as much in our previous episode. That the tree was like the the cork in the bottle, keeping things in, I guess, um, or keeping other thing out. Um, so yeah, it, it doesn't quite make sense that once it was requesting power, they said no. That because I would I would have had the same reaction as you did. So yeah, I don't know. I, there so, must be another detail we don't get there. Yeah. So that led me to believe maybe that did get the energy, but it seems like Laren wouldn't have wanted that to happen. So I don't know. Um, but yeah, so if anyone else has any clarity on that, yeah. let us know. Um, well, how how are they there also? Like, how are the devils there? Like, how's the devil there? How's the Aaron yes there? Because these are creatures of the Nine Hells. Um, I guess I guess the Tree of Names, it specifically grabs, like, the names of the deities and keeps them out. So, like, maybe these wouldn't be as forcefully kept out. But it was also mentioned that the devil hadn't stepped foot on Exandria in their right. lifetime. So Right. So I take it that, like the the door was blasted open you know the the, right. the the prison and so maybe because of that there's like little things floating through the cracks is is my best guess um because i i don't know it'd be interesting i don't know if we'll get an answer to that specifically but i was wondering the same thing um but i think it's probably kind of what you're saying it's more keeping the big bads out and maybe these smaller things are kind of able to, to yeah. come through now during this weekend phase or whatever um but yeah i was wondering that um, yeah, okay. yeah i think i, I there it, maybe it'll come to me as we keep going okay. but there was something else but i can't find it in my notes but so yeah i'll just say reverse gravity was really cool um the casting of fireball was really cool i think the party had two fireballs casted on them yeah, which yeah, is really they did. crazy um, and then the resilient orb or she homebrewed named it, you know, yeah. Coco's orb or whatever. Um, that, that was so, cool. was so freaking cool. <laughs> and what an awesome, like so, homebrew by Brennan in that moment to like, think of that interaction. Yeah. I think that was, that's what makes a great DM. Cause he, he basically moved away from the stat block and basically said, this could be a really awesome moment for my player. Um, and it was, it was incredibly epic. I, I'm taking a lot of notes from Brennan. I mean, Matt, Matt is amazing, but Brennan has come out of nowhere. I'd never followed any of his content and, uh, I could watch, I could easily watch an entire campaign from him. Like he is, 
He's stupid good. It's yeah, so yeah. crazy how good he is. He's incredible. And um, on that subject, you know, uh, a lot of people in our comments and stuff have, uh, you know, because we've mentioned we haven't watched any of D20, so they've been telling us we should check it out. Um, we should. Maybe we should even. Yeah, I'm down. Talk about it. You know, like do a series on whatever little mini campaign we watch or something. That'd be perfect. Yeah, for sure. We're grabbing the critters. Let's go ahead and grab the the D20ers. Yeah, yeah. Too. I don't know if that's what they refer to themselves as. <laughs> One of them is like, we don't. Please don't. <laughs> don't Please ever don't say do that again. Yeah. You're out. <laughs> so, um, uh, what what uh, else? Um, um, so, I mean, <sighs> some of it's a little self-explanatory, I guess. Like, Patia and Xerxes. I mean, that was just an awesome reveal. Um the comment that she makes on how we, we sundered, like we split his soul from his body. To me, the way I took that was that just like the boat, once he left and came back, he didn't all come back. And maybe the face, cause he, cause he couldn't right? Cause the, right, right. So maybe the face that they see is like his soul stuck in the tree. That that's my understanding as well. So just to, just to paint a picture of what, actually happened and help me walk through this but so uh evandrin you know being really close with laren and the first night of avalir volunteers to help her with what she's trying to do basically is the guinea pig to get teleported first right right so they do it presumably it's successful he then comes back and that's when he gets sick right um Xerxes does everything he can to try to heal him. Nothing works. And he eventually just dies or fades away, whatever the terminology right. was. Then Xerxes goes to Patia. It's right. like true resurrection. It doesn't work. Right. Then, all right, I can't take this. Modify my memory. Right. Boom. And now right. his soul's stuck in the astral yeah. mesh. Um, yeah, yeah, that sounds right. For your money, did Laren or did Patia know what Laren did? Like, did Patia know? I, yeah, I think so because after they do their experiment with the rudder, after they you know they use like the tuning fork of you know the solar bow, mm-hmm. um, they use it to you know calibrate the machine. Um, which, which was an interesting detail, by the way. It was interesting that Laren thought, I need that because the settings were wrong when actually it seemed to have worked originally. It's like we said, unbeknownst to her, she didn't know the tree was basically blocking entry back. Um, but in that whole d- discovery in the second episode, Patia surprisingly, everyone's surprised to see that she has been fully involved in this. And she's like, yeah, like this is what we're trying to do. And so yeah. um, I, I think... One of two things. I think either she's known about it all along and it even feeds into Asmodeus's comment of your friends are lying to you and that patient knew what really happened. Um, or it could be that she was so sharing in the pain of Xerxes and modifying his memory, went to Laren to be like, what, what, what has happened here? Like what's been going on? Yeah. Um, and then maybe Laren brought her in at that point. Um, but I'm assuming she, yeah, she either before or after knows. Um, what do you think? I think, 
I assumed so, and so I thought so, but then I just it kind of was brought into doubt since the context we got was basically only that true resurrection spell. So I just wasn't sure if the implication was that she knew what really happened to him or not. Because, I mean, presumably, I mean, I guess she wouldn't know that it wouldn't work, but presumably if she knew, she would kind of know that the true resurrection spell wasn't going to work. But maybe she wouldn't have. Maybe she would have thought it could maybe work still. I mean, I guess they don't really know what happened to him at that point. Yeah, I think maybe when the, the spell failed, she knew that this should have worked. And so maybe that's when she went to Laren and was like, okay, he's clearly not, you know, he's only yeah. mostly dead. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so yeah. what's going on here? Um, which, which is really, the whole thing's really tragic, honestly. 100%. And I wonder, I guess we don't, uh, Evandrin could have been sent anywhere because they didn't have the solar bow at that point. So he may not, right. have, he may have not gone to the celestial plane or whatever we want to call it. Oh he might've gone, dude. he might've gone somewhere very bad. You know, he could have gone to the realm of the nine hells and which would explain Asmodeus using his true likeness. Well, he would have um, to have gone to the prison true, wherever that's that is, true. which maybe that is, Maybe that's the nine hells, you know, who knows? Yeah, that's but, fair. That's um, fair. But yeah, maybe he did. And that's how Asmodeus kind of set these things in motion. Um, One more quick thing before we kind of, I want to talk about that a little bit. Um, But I thought it was interesting. And you mentioned this in the recap that there was kind of this implication made around the true resurrection spell being kind of forbidden or not, or like, yeah. or heavily guarded or something which i thought right. was really interesting in this in this age of arcanum um I, I wonder why that was or why that is i would i would think that you know i think she says that it's druidic is what she said like it was a druidic ritual um which makes more sense in my mind because it wouldn't be forbidden by the mages of avalir it would be forbidden by the druids who are absolutely like a foil to the mages of avalir yeah. you know, the mages of avalir are you know, there's no mountain that we can't climb. Like, of course, and it's the whole reason, it's the whole reason for them being left in the dark on the tree is because if we told you, you would take advantage of it. So I'm assuming maybe they, shockingly enough, did not have this magic. They didn't know the spell. The druids did. And Portia... That makes sense. You know, that's that's all makes sense in my mind. Because I, I agree with you. It wouldn't quite make sense. I mean, the mages would be like, yeah, let's just resurrect anybody. Like, why not? Um, so, I don't know. Yeah, that checks out. Plus, maybe it was just kind of flavor for the fact that what is what is Pesha oh, is a wizard. Yeah, right. Because they don't. I don't think they can learn that spell. So maybe that was also kind of just like the flavor for right. Yeah, how a wizard was doing it. Um, but yeah, okay. So now, uh, and I'm I'm just kind of jumping around. So you let's do it. Help yeah. direct me if you want to. Yeah. Uh, so speaking of the whole Evandrin potentially, you know inspiring asmodeus to do this plan clearly asmodeus has been pulling strings has been yeah manipulating xerxes specifically as the blood like he's the chosen uh you know as referenced the blood of the chosen um what what is what is he the chosen of the chosen of the one that's kind of knocking over the dominoes that's going to allow the tree to be destroyed and him to walk through. Uh, and that seems like the obvious answer, but I'm wondering, you know, Xerxes wasn't personally the one who did it. 
um, but maybe splitting hairs. I guess none of this would be possible without Xerxes kind of in the middle of everything. So maybe that's why he's the chosen one or if there's something else. Um, well, they, they got his blood though. So there's something more to it than him just pushing over dominoes. I mean, they need his blood for some reason. Yeah. I was wondering if maybe that was part of her turning into that sentient weapon or if it, is maybe something else, some other ritual that needs to be done. Um, I think, I I think there's something we don't know yet related to him. We do know, I know we talked in the last episode. I really liked last up in the sense of like basically making the black and white morality of the betrayer gods and the prime deities as as much more gray. Um, I do think as Modius, it's, it's be, it'd be unfair to say he was fully lying. It could be that, he was being totally honest and what we see now is someone super pissed off you know and it's it's maybe even why xerxes pleaded like we're your children like don't don't forget us and asmodeus ironically says um i won't forget you till the end of time basically yeah. uh but yeah i it's interesting because it's like okay what is xerxes's what role does he still have to play because he hasn't, like you said, he hasn't done anything yet. He obviously is being manipulated. We said it since episode one that maybe the dream was very carefully, cleverly used um, to manipulate him. Um, I guess we'll see in the next episode if he's going to just like, he'd, ha- he'd have good reason to get pissed off. I mean, everyone's basically lied to him and screwed him over. I mean, they took the love of his life and then they lied to him about it. So, yeah. But I don't know. the interesting thing is, he, I mean, okay, the the plane shifting portion was a complete lie, but at least the modified memory, you know, he was true. He volunteered for that portion of it, but uh, he still has plenty of reasons un- to be un- unless, unless she did know what really happened. And yes, she was doing the modified memory at his request, but also wasn't telling him the right. full story. Yeah. I, so I think it, it seems like, that he may become like Harold of Asmodeus and like one of his generals. Right. Right. That seems like a, it could easily be the case. I just don't know if he would do that willingly. So I'm wondering maybe Asmodeus has the power to just kind of like puppet him or maybe does he get so pissed off about, <laughs> you know, I just can't see Xerxes like turning on all of humanity in that way. Um, yeah. And he also has a son too. I mean, yeah. So either he doesn't, become a herald of asmodeus or i think maybe he can be fully controlled or something because maybe you know he's lent himself too much to to asmodeus or something um but quick timeline again so we know that vespin chloris did this event which i want to talk more about that in a second um that opened the door right yeah so for my money it's since that moment which was a couple weeks ago i think in universe that's probably when the dream started and all these pieces starting falling into place, um, ultimately leading to where we are now. Right. Uh, which, cause you know, I imagine since the door was broken, Asmodeus now did have some influence. level of control. Yeah. Level of influence over the world, even though they couldn't fully break into it yet. Um, but Vespin, what do you think happened there? Cause he surely he didn't perform this ritual because Asmodeus wouldn't have had influence 
before the door was open. So it's not as if Asmodeus puppeted Vespin to open the door, right? Maybe he did, but to me, he didn't. So he, Ves- calls him his, he calls him his puppet. So, I mean, I, I think... I think it works both ways. I think I think a neat and tidy way would be that Asmodeus manipulated him into doing this. How? Who, who knows? Maybe the Betrayer guys do have like a microcosm of influence. I think the more simple explanation is all the lore we got in the first episode, which is the um, Matron of Ravens ascended, and everyone since then has always wanted to do the same thing. You know, full of ego and hubris, he decides, well, why would we go up? Why wouldn't we go down? And basically performs this ritual, goes down, opens the door, so to speak. Um, and then from then on is the puppet or, you know, maybe in his mind, I, I like I like it this way better in the sense of I think he maybe thought he could become a betrayer god. And instead, judging by his skinned off face, <laughs> uh, <laughs> it, and, you know, it's always made comments about how people who do this ritual, it never ends well for them. I it seems to line up i mean he's mutilated doesn't seem very happy um i'm assuming he went down opened the door and rather than taking over he got he got taken over (laughs) he got dominated and not literally i mean i think he just he's now a steward of asmodeus yeah so i agree completely that's that's my explanation for things is that he wasn't influenced before but in his hubris was like i'm gonna do this uh, and as we know, like the Matron of Ravens defeated the previous God of Death. Um, right. We don't know the details of what that means or whatever, but that happened. So I'm guessing he like got into a duel with Asmodeus and got his ass kicked. Uh, right. And then since has been puppeted. Um, I've seen a lot of um, chatter about, uh, you know, Laren's responsible for the calamity. Uh, you know, it wasn't Vespin. It was her all along. And I was like. What, what she plays I, a she played a part. You I don't know. know, man. Don't take this from me. What did I say in the very first episode? What said, did I say in the first episode when we talked about her introduction and her being like, "This is my moment. This is it." I literally said verbatim. I said, "All right, it'd be really interesting if we've always known Vespin as like the dude who started the calamity, and really it was Laren. We got some real mad scientist vibes." Sure enough, here we are, episode three. <laughs> As Modius comes out of the tree, if you watch her, Bria's face, she's like, shoot, crap. You're like, oh, man, I, I made a big uh-oh. I made a huge mistake. And I think that paired with Loquacious's, Loquacious's message on Laren tried to save everyone, um, he actually has a very clever comment earlier. I don't know if it was intentional or not, but there's a comment about like history or something. Oh, I think he's talking to Laren, and Laren's like, history will remember me well and he's like no history isn't real history is whatever it's it's the whole line we've always known history is, is written by the winners right and so i think um that little detail of him being like laren tried to save us i think it does remember her well but absolutely i think she is the one responsible she could have stopped the ship from descending she could have um you know, basically when Evandrin died, been like, this is not, this is way beyond us. Um, but she is a crazy mad scientist person who's like, it was all worth it, even if it killed my friend. Um, even if, you know, this, this has to happen, it's my right. It's, it's like my, not just my right, it's like my whole life has been building to this moment. Um, so yeah, yeah, I would blame her. <laughs> Tell me well, why I shouldn't. 
everything you said is right and factual and true, but I'm going to push back just a little bit because I just don't think it's fair to lump it all on her. Like this without Vespin, none of this happens either, though. You know, he's the one that blasted open the door, you know, without Xerxes, none of this happens. Uh, So, yes, she's the one that blighted the tree. But I do think it was a really nice touch that, you know, the reason she finally did was because it attacked her friends. You know, she had. She hadn't done it before then. So I like to think that, you know, it was love that ultimately caused her to do it and not the ego of like, I have to do this with the ship. I mean, probably she would have done it anyway, but like that was the, the I don't, trigger. I just, I just don't buy it. I think, I think, I think people in general were notoriously not self-aware. I think, you know, cause her friends got like impaled or something. I think yeah. that's a very neat and tidy that's the reason that she probably even believed, but subconsciously, how many times has she talked about how much she hates the arboreal calyx and oh, how yeah. it's siphoning her energy, how it's take it's like basically threatening her life's work. And so I think I think she's always hated the tree. She not saying she purposely did this, because again, I don't think we're always so self-conscious. I think she saw an opportunity to destroy it and was like, screw that thing, I'm getting rid of it. Um and ultimately chose her and i think you're i think it's fair what you say i mean it's she's not totally she's not wholly responsible i mean there's some shared we 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 could probably fairly say it's majorly vespin chloris since he's obviously super evil (laughs) but uh, you know i think she's partly responsible i think the only person not responsible is maybe sarah who's like the only person who seems to have his hands clean um but then we said last episode you know, maybe his his flaw is that he's too close, that he's unwilling to be yeah. objective with his friends. But um, I don't know. But no, agreed, agreed. Um, and I also just like that, uh, you know, that we knew what we were getting into with this story. Like this was happening no matter what, essentially, you know. So props to Abria for being the one to do it, you know. And I think it was open to where it didn't, Obviously, this was gonna. We were gonna reach the destination one way or another, but I think we could have gotten there a couple different ways. Um, so, props to her for like being true to the character and true to the story, and actually causing yeah. I, the calamity. You know, being the one that finally kind of breaks right. that final wall. Um, I, I real quick, I do like what you just said there of the sense of like I I was wondering what was the party in the know of before the episode. Like, did Brennan sit down with the Bria be like, "You're the one who's gonna do it. This is what's gonna happen no matter what." I don't think that happened. I think it's like you said, they all, it's like playing clue. They all had a reason to have done it. Um, and that's the master craftsmanship behind this whole campaign is I think they all had a reason to do it. They all, I mean, think about going to like a murder mystery party. Like you're all given the reason why you would have done it. You're all given the insight of what, of what you know that someone else doesn't know. Um, and I think they all had that opportunity for sure. Yeah. Which, uh, kind of, that all comes together with uh, Lou uh, saying like, man, I thought I was going to be you uh, referring to Abria. Like I thought I was going to be the one that was going to take this down. Right. But that yeah. damn prophecy, uh, yeah. you know, which is so good. Uh, one other moment. Uh, I just love that his character, um, you know, really clutched onto that. And like, you know, his whole life being this pirate captain that kind of like was born from nothing and reached these heights. Like he wants to save this city. Like this is his dream. This is everything he always you know, strive for. Um, and that prophecy, like, you know, even, even though he wants it to be false and thinks it's false, he can't take that risk of it maybe being true. So he's going to try to stop these things from happening. And one other like really nice detail. I don't remember exactly when it happened, but at one point, uh, 
Lou, Nidus asked Brennan, like, I look at the stars because there was some line about the stars and the prophecy. So I liked yeah. that he was like, even before that tree moment, uh, Nidus was looking for these signs to see is like, is this the prophecy? Is this coming true? I and love how the prophecy, I don't want to say it was subtle. It wasn't subtle, but it was such a, um, it wasn't a, how do I just say this? The prophecy was out there and it almost seemed, um, I can't, I can't find the phrasing I want to use, but it, it just sat with him. You could tell it ate away yeah. at him. And then when he got to that moment, him just realizing what was happening, I love that you mentioned that. I mean, and he, Lou, did an amazing job. Um, here we are again. I mean, the whole cast is freaking <laughs> amazing. They're so good. Um, they, they obviously, I, I guess I can, we can assume they had a, a, an episode zero together, or they seemed really, because there were a couple of comments, too, of like um, them saying, like, you're my best friend, like, um, yeah. You know, and they obviously know each other well, and you you felt that seeing them interact with with one another. Um, I don't know where I'm going with this, but no, anyway, they, yeah. they obviously did their homework and their background. Yeah. And there was other there was one other moment during the episode that uh, I think Sam maybe said, "Yeah, you gave us those flow charts or like the informational." packets so essentially they were all given like a lore right. document um and he's like i didn't know it was just because you were gonna <laughs> use all these people against us i think it was when the canalfi came into the battle yeah uh, right made that comment so clearly and i mean i think everyone pretty much assumed this but yeah definitely they were given that you know they did a lot of work on these characters and there was a lot of like established background that they developed i am almost certain in saying um so yeah you know uh deep stuff but great stuff um, bro well let me ask you this let me ask about the moments that happened um well i'll say one thing first and i'll say that i want to talk about asmodeus coming into exandria but before i do that i do think it's interesting i saw a comment that um and there's been this this theme through the entire series of arrogance ego hubris and it's been really well delivered i think it's been um not too on the nose it's just been a, a very constant theme and you have the galdrashari who are presumably the goodest guys in the sense of they're trying to protect this mountain where um i think it was rakan and Kalmort, uh two of the primordials who were never killed but who were sealed away mm -hmm. um i probably should have mentioned that in the recap but um are sealed in mount yagora they let them take the top of the mountain and we have the conversation internally between the leader and one of his underlings that's like we can't tell them we can't trust them with them, whatever and so again you assume like these are the goodest of the guys but i saw a really great comment on reddit of someone saying like no like they play into the theme of arrogance i'm i'm basically supplanting my phrasing they basically said they're just as much to blame because they didn't tell them um in my mind it's it's again it plays into the theme of of ego and arrogance is we know better than the wizards we can't trust them right we're right so we can't tell them about the tree's true purpose and and maybe maybe they were right in that but maybe there should have been like a you know Maybe a select few of the mages, like Amir, should have known, because um, it's the life and death of Exandria that we're talking about here. Yeah, it was so. it was their hubris that we can handle this on our own. We don't, you know, we don't need anybody else. We'll take care of it. One hundred percent agreed with that. Uh, the Galdashari did, did a good job reading it off Reddit. <laughs> <laughs> the Galdashari, I think, are d definitely have their culpability in all of this happening as well. Um, 
just this is kind of a, a quick aside, but wanted to mention it too. Just how cool that the tree's purpose was like this planetary scale protection spell that you know worked because Avaliers traveling all across the ley lines and stuff. I thought that was such a cool explanation um, and like flavoring for how how the tree was accomplishing what we you know presumed it to be accomplishing. Um, but just such a the, the, such the a detail, nice way to do it. The detail I didn't get was was the tree grown by the Galdrasari? Was it at was it in um uh what's the name of the town below Mount Yagora? Um the Druid town. Yeah, Toramunda. Um was it a tree there that they picked up and put in Avalier? Um because like here's my question. The tree's only been there 119 years before but in Avalier, right after the Matron of Ravens, um, well, rather it was the there Aboral, before the, that, the yeah, yeah, yeah. Calyx was has only been there, right? Um, so my question is, 240 years prior, what was protecting Exandria? Uh, nothing, I guess. You know, I think it. The I guess matron, they were locked. They were locked away though, because I was trying to figure out right. why they weren't roaming before then, but they had been locked away previously. So I guess that explains it. And it's not. It's not just, I think it, it serves more than just keeping the betrayer gods out. It's keeping anything, presumably, yeah. from another plane of his ex- existence out. So I'm sure it's, it's preventing other threats too that aren't necessarily like deity level, but, um, you know, whatever level you want to call it. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I assume they either created it or maybe it was just a tree that they enchanted to perform this ritual. Um, you know, I don't know, but magic tree. Yeah. Okay. Well, my second question is, um, what do you think happened in those final moments? The tree is sundered. I guess the barrier is destroyed. Is is Asmodeus entering Avalir now? Is he? Did he just step foot? I mean, are they looking at a gargantuan? Because he's not really described much. Like, what did you visualize in that last few moments? Yeah, I mean, uh, the tree splitting, Vespin climbing out. I, I, if Asmodeus is there, I think he's obviously like take like he's not in his maybe he is his like full true form. Maybe it's I'm I'm assuming deities. You know, we were told that they walk amongst us in the age of Arcanum. You know, like I'm sure that they can control themselves to be humanoid size if they want to. So. Uh, if he is there, I'm assuming he's more of a normal size. Um, but we'll see, I guess. But yeah, I basically, the seals broken, they're climbing through was, I think like the, that is literally what was happening, but also kind of metaphorically now, like all bets are off. Like he's climbing into this world now. Now, if that's literally happening through the tree right this moment, I don't know, but maybe, you know, with a deity powers, he could probably do whatever he wants. Yeah, give me your predictions on this last episode. Well, real one step back before, uh, if I may, the when they're getting like the visions from the tree. Um, one thing I wanted to mention or talk about was loquacious, and what's fun, I, I'm so mad I didn't put this together, but I actually uh, before this week's episode aired, one of our comments on the past episode. Was someone pointing out, hey, Loquacious's last name is Seely, like the Seely Court in the Feywild. And I was like, oh my right. God. Yeah, duh. right. 
I had, never, I had never put that together. So when he touches the tree and sees, uh, I wrote down the, whatever that person's name was. Um, the, it was the it was the war queen, right, of the burning veil. Uh, Elmenor, which yeah. I don't know if that is that the same person. Yeah, presumably the same person that, that wants Fernback. Yeah, I mean I don't know. So Loquacious Seely. Like, is he, like, one of the most important and powerful members of the Feywild, or at least part of that family? Um, or is Seelie just, like, a generalized name? I don't know, but... Um, it's got to it's gotta be something general, because you would assume... Because Laren says something like, you won't live to see the next one, implying, like, he'll die of old age. Um, I don't yeah. know if that's, like, a thing, like, where if you're not in the Feywild, because time is different, that you can age and die. You know, it's like a Lord of the Rings, uh, Erwin and uh, what's his face? You know, we're... Yeah, Erwin. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, the whole thing's very confusing for me in the sense of like, yeah, is he... I'll, I'll, just Instead of being long-winded, I think it's like a general name, but I don't know. It's a really interesting connection for sure. Yeah, and so I just thought it was, it, you know, he sees like uh, Elmenor. Elmenor, uh, yeah. And she, she clearly, I don't know. I think it's a, she, uh, she mm -hmm. clearly knows like a lot that's happening. She's like, you, something's crawling on the face of your world. Don't let her find the names. Uh, yeah. so why does Who's... she know so much? Like, you know, like, is right. it because she's this arch fay and is from a different plane of existence? So maybe knows about this powerful worldwide spell that's preventing, you know, I, I don't know. It's just because because Patia was just seeing like memories and stuff, but Loquacious like got like a Jedi mind link to Elmenor. Yeah. So I just and is, it, is it referring to Patia not finding the names? I was going to ask you that too because Elmenor says like don't let her find the name or something to that effect. Uh, yeah, do not let her find the names. So I was going to ask you that same question. My best guess is that yeah, like because Patia is currently one accessing this knowledge maybe if she finds out what truly is happening maybe she'll destroy it and so maybe that's what Elmanor meant like hey like stop this before it goes further or maybe it means something entirely else that we're still missing I gotta ask why haven't any prime deities swooped down and been like yo leave this tree alone it's kind of a big deal it's really important like I'm just surprised that there's not like where's the fail safe for you know, keeping True. the tree from being destroyed, which I guess, I guess there was the comment Brennan made on like mortals for, are forgetful and that maybe over the last 120 years, people have sort of forgotten the importance behind this tree. Yeah. And maybe, I mean, I don't really know to the left, uh, like, I don't think deities are om omnipotent. Or, right. It's not like the, it's not like God, like the Christian right. God. It's like, not like so they might not know that like this is happening until maybe like right now, maybe like now they can feel the disturbance in the thing. Yeah. Which we know the calamity is a battle between them all, so they're probably on the way uh soon, if not already. And shit's about to hit the fan. Uh but and yeah. wasn't there a comment too about how Asmodeus isn't the only betrayer god who's because even before the comment on Kathmora there's something like there was a comment about like there were maybe I'm being, maybe I'm misremembering, but like maybe there were other betrayer gods who were doing schemes elsewhere in Exandria. Yeah. I mean, cause 
you know, presumably if the door was blasted open, all of them have been in this intermediary plane or whatever. So if Asmodeus has had some, some influence, they all presumably have. Right. right. So unless whatever Vespin did only blasted as Asmodeus out, um, I guess we don't really know, but yeah, now, now all bets are off. So yeah, all of the betrayer gods are seemingly free to enter. Um, so yeah, it'll be interesting to see if there are other machinations in play from other betrayer gods. Um, but yeah, uh, to to cycle back <sighs> to what you originally asked me, I don't know what to expect from this last episode. Because I mean, this would have been slightly unsatisfying, but the show could have ended where it ended, like entirely. Like that's calamity started. Like tree's gone. Asmodeus is here. That is how the calamity started. Thanks. You know, see you next time. I'm glad we're getting another episode. Um, but I think it's just going to be like how some form of combat, obviously. And then can we escape? Like, can Sarah get to his kids and give him the runes of recall? And who, how many people can we get off this city before it? Oh, okay. Rewind a little bit. Sorry. You mentioned it, uh, Raushan and Kamort, the primordials trapped in the mountain. We know that on the one Eldritch battery that was successfully destroyed, their names were written on it. Right. So, I the detail. Yeah. And we also know that, you know, the whole thing of like, don't let the city land, but really they wanted to let the right. city land. We know that that wasn't necessarily tied to the tree because the city has not landed and trees destroyed asmodeus is out you know presumably right. so this may be something else entirely and i think it may be the city landing and the energy of the replenishment is maybe to break raushan and kamort out so that's that's my best guess for what happens if the city lands which maybe since they've saved most of the batteries it won't anymore but um that has to be my guess of what's going on there um did you have any thoughts on that yeah i mean it makes sense um maybe yeah they they're trying to break their homies out of prison i don't know um, yeah i i need to go check the content to see what what's written about both of those primordials um because they presumably don't get sealed away at the end of uh at the end of um the calamity right i'm not sure actually i um I wanted to look into this as well because my understanding and it's clearly wrong, I guess, but you know, cause they mentioned in the schism, most of the primordials were killed. These two were imprisoned, right? Which it's not to say there couldn't also be a third and fourth option for specific primordials that maybe weren't killed or whatever. Right. But I thought that different primordials were locked away to their own plane. And that is what created, like, that's why there is an elemental plane of fire because one of them was, you know, and that's why there's an elemental plane of water and et cetera, et cetera. Um, I thought these were the only two that weren't killed, but instead were sealed away. But right. That's, yeah. That's what they said, but I just wasn't, I okay, wasn't yeah. sure. So I'm trying I don't know how to, to find... reconcile those, those two things. Yeah. I'll have to Google it later. Well, I'm just, you know, just to beat a dead horse, we need a source book. We need a calamity <laughs> source book. Um, and, oh, I do want to say this before we before we do predictions for the last episode. Yeah, um, it's almost raised the stakes for me for campaign three of wondering 
Like we know planes are shifting. It's we know a, planes are shifting. It's a certain. solstice. Yeah. Yeah. It could be an apogee solstice. Could be. Which I think would be a really great tie-in. We know that some things are trying to come to Exandria. We saw the Ono Plateau, um, yep. the Fire Sigil. And so are the deities coming back? Maybe? I don't know. Um, but it, it feels like there's a detail there that is going to feed into maybe the big bad of campaign three. I'm not sure. But yeah, I agree. Because um, I mean, how, how long does Matt's story go? You know what I'm saying? Like, maybe they do this until they're 80 and then they're like, all right, we're done. I would guess. I mean, I don't know. I honestly don't know. <laughs> so I, I see it more as a swan song, I guess, but I don't know this. What do you mean? Like, well, I just I just see. Campaign after campaign three, I just wonder, does the cast continue with the campaign four or is it like, hey, yeah, we're. We want to do something different now. We want to try something different now, um, which I don't know if they would. Like I said, they could just we're making Buku's money. This is a great brand. Let's just keep doing it forever. Um, but, you know, it could be it could also be a trilogy. And it's like, let's do something else now. I don't know. Yeah, I. I don't I don't think campaign three is the end of it. Um, but it could be the end of maybe there's going to maybe we leave Exandria for campaign four and we there's a whole new world with a whole new sets of stories or whatever um so in that sense you know maybe it is the swan song of exandria which would be interesting um but yeah i think definitely if not a direct line of influence from what's happening in the calamity to what's happening in c3 i think there's definitely going to be the ripple effects that are right relevant um so yeah it'll be interesting to see if you know this is an apogee solstice that we're dealing with in c3 or if it's just a normal one and what the hell is is going on if it's regarded if it's related to these same deities or maybe just some other locked away malevolence that's trying to to return um well ruidus hasn't been mentioned at all which i don't know that if that's intentional right. or not so yeah i mean yeah it would be interesting if maybe ruidus is so we know all the gods including the good ones locked them all behind the divine gate um yeah what's what is what is that by the way because i was mentioned a couple of times so um this is way beyond my experience with critical role what yeah. is the divine gate so this is just general world lore you know you're familiar with the schism that was a battle what we're dealing with now is is the calamity which is the next like massive conflict at the end of the calamity the gods the good ones are like this you know this isn't working so they gather all of themselves and the bad ones and they basically create what's called the divine gate so they all permanently separate from exandria um like mentioned earlier you know the gods can walk amongst us during the age of arcanum like the gods were freely like on exandria doing what they want that's no longer a thing their only influence is like via empowering clerics and empowering you know so they still have influence in that way but they cannot like appear on the face of the the planet anymore uh because of the divine gate so it it's kind of similar to like the prison you know with the tree keeping people out but i just don't think there's any there's no it's, tree it's, that's enabling it it's just like there's a we've locked ourselves away from this place forever type of thing is, is it a physical gate or is it just like a metaphorical i don't think like it's barrier. like a, a physical gate uh now there may be something that like you you know i don't yeah, know okay. but uh right. but yeah and i know that it possibly could be 
broken down. I mean, if it was put up, it could be broken down, right? Um, but yeah, so that's what it is. Uh, but anyway, so to cycle back, we know the gods are behind that, but maybe Ruidus was like where something else was imprisoned, maybe a primordial or maybe some other entity. And, you know, maybe that's, we don't know what Ruidus is. This is that was just a shot in the dark, but maybe, <laughs> maybe at the end of the calamity, something's imprisoned and it's Ruidus. And maybe now we're dealing with that in C3 or something. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Predictions. Who lives? Who dies? Oh, man. I have to think everyone dies. I mean, I hope Sarah, we know Sarah has, we know Sarah has two runes of recall, which are keyed to the mom, I believe was what was said in Orwin's note or something to that effect. Yeah. So presumably those are like pop it and you're going to teleport somewhere else. So presumably he's giving those to his kids. Right. And then what's he going to do? Is he going to be like, I helped make this mess. Like, let me go see what I can do about it. Or is he, he going to hightail and just fly it yeah, out of he there? Just fly away. I mean, yeah, I don't know. I think I, I like want him to do that so that he, he lives. But for my money, I feel like he's going to go dive back into the fray to try to, you know, help if not his friends, just other people. Um, yeah. I mean, he seems like the most moral character. So I could see him definitely doing something like that for sure. I'm trying to think of well, okay, Xerxes maybe doesn't die because I'm still he <laughs> might I feel like he might become oh man you know the herald yeah. of Asmodeus. But other than that, I think probably now are they all gonna die in this next episode? I don't know, but I think they're all doomed in very yeah. short fashion at least. But maybe not. I mean, if if we do get some other little mini campaigns set during various times in the calamity it would be cool to see some of them again so uh, uh this is i mean i haven't answered your question at all but i definitely think that we're gonna see some people die yeah. on thursday um what about you you have any specific predictions for who's gonna bite it i think laren's dead i think nidus is dead i think patia's dead i think xerxes is gonna become evil Sarah, I want to believe he will make it out, but I think the way you described it is, is kind of how I see it. He's going to get his kids out, and then he's going to die. I could see Loquacious maybe escaping to the Feywild. Maybe. Now, you said Xerxes becomes evil. Do you think he turns, or do you think he is controlled in some way? I think he'll turn. Oh. I think, I mean, it's not very clean and tidy in my head. Because the fact that he has a kid, that's a pretty big motivator not to be evil. Um, <laughs> Maybe it's used but, against um, him, though. Maybe it's like, we'll protect, like, I'll spare your son if you serve me or something. I mean, yeah, that's a really great, that's a really great way to think of it for sure. So, yeah, I don't know. All I know is I keep hoping it's Thursday. <laughs> I know. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get some popcorn and get ready for this because I, I think it's going to be incredible. I'm really excited for it. Me too. So. All right. Uh, let us know in the comments what you guys thought of the episode, your theories, thoughts, and uh, we'd love to respond. Don't forget, we're also on Twitter at the Pixelus. Will, what do you want to do for our thumbnail? That's a good question. Uh, I don't know. Do you have- maybe like an, maybe like an uh oh? Maybe like one of us is casting blight and the other one's going like ooh, like <laughs> or something like that or sure yeah you know. works for me who right. do you what do you want to do since this is your idea doesn't matter to me now uh, you gotta pick 
I'll be I'll be the uh, I'll be the blighter. Okay. Okay. I'm gonna do my Emperor Palpatine <laughs> lightning. Are you ready? <laughs> All right. I think it also doubles as Vespin Clora's clawing out, by the way. Hey, there we go. So options. All right. Well, Perfect. that's all we got. And uh, we'll be excited to talk about this next episode. Grab your tissues because people are going to die. Yeah. And we'll see you after Thursday. <laughs> see y'all.